ask you to uh, please open your Bibles, Genesis 42 and 43. Genesis chapters 42 and 43. It's a great morning for me. It's great to see Dan. I've known Dan since he was a little boy. I've known Legree since we were actually young, Legree. Remember? We were young. You remember? So we used to play touch football at Presbytery. Remember? Yeah. I mean, I don't do that anymore. So, so it's, uh, time marches on. But let me pray. Father, as we come to your word, Open our minds, our hearts, make us receptive to the truths herein contained. May they challenge us, may they encourage us, may they build us up in that holy faith once delivered unto the saints. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. So let me ask, with whom in this church body are you at odds? Is it their fault? Is it yours? Whichever the case, let me ask you, do you believe that God can change your hearts, reconcile you to each other, and bless you with a relationship characterized by peace and love? If you're a believer, you've experienced such reconciliation. You were once an enmity with God, denying or ignoring the one by whom and for whom you were made. But then by God's grace, by God's grace alone, you, you acknowledged, confessed, repented of your sins. You, you now believe and understand that, that Jesus died to, to pay the penalty for your rebellion. You, you embraced him. You embraced Jesus as your savior, your Lord, and your king. And so now you live, you live reconciled. You live reconciled to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You live reconciled because God is reconciled to you because Jesus died. You live knowing God is reconciled to you, that you are reconciled to him, that nothing can ever separate you from his love, that he is, that God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who knows everything about you that there is to know, that he's at peace with you, and you can live at peace with him. So let me ask. If you and the Lord could be reconciled and, lived at peace, and live at peace, then with whom do you doubt that you can be reconciled and live in a peaceful and loving relationship? You know, tensions between believers, I'm not picking on you, it's true of every church. Tension between believers has troubled the New, church, New Testament church. It troubled the New Testament church from the very beginning. It was trouble, the New Testament church was, was troubled by hostility between 
Jewish and Gentile believers. They had different cultures. They had different lifestyles. They didn't trust or respect one another. But then Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes to them in Ephesians 2.16, and he reminds them, Christ died. And he died to break down the wall of hostility that exists between you Gentile and, and Jewish believers. And therefore, Paul writes, you must, by God's enabling strength, strive to live reconciled and at peace with one another. Believer, believer, you are at peace with God because Jesus laid down his life. And therefore, on the authority of God's word, I say to you, if you die to yourself, if you will die to yourself and strive in his strength to love and honor his children, to honor them above yourself, you can be reconciled. And you can, be, and you can live at peace with one another. And what we're told here in Genesis 42 and 43 just underlines the truth of all that. Jacob's children, as we have seen over the past many weeks, they're troubled by hostility towards each other. But here in Genesis 42 and 43, the Lord begins to break down the wall of hostility that separates them from each other and, most importantly, separates them from the Lord. Now, I asked you to read Genesis 42 and 43. Remember? I won't ask for a show of hands, but I asked you to read Genesis 42 and 43 in preparation for today, so I'm going to walk you through these chapters, pausing to point out verses and ideas that I, I pray will help you appreciate more fully this, this amazing historical account. Now, just remember where we are, Joseph hated by his brother, sold into slavery, accused of attempted rape, unjustly imprisoned, and then left and forgotten in prison. Thirteen years have gone by. Thirteen years, not four days, not a month. Thirteen years. And now Joseph, as we saw last week, is the prime minister of Egypt. Who could have thunk it? Now, as Joseph prophesied, as we saw last week, seven years of bountiful harvest have ended. Seven years of famine have begun. It's a famine impacting all of the known world, including Canaan. And because of Joseph's wise administration, abundant stores of grain, they're available for purchase in Egypt. And the nations, the representatives of the nations are, are streaming to Egypt to buy grain. As Genesis 42 begins, <clears throat> Jacob, Joseph's father, still living in Canaan, he knows that there is grain to be bought in Egypt. And so he sends 
10 of his sons to Egypt so that, as he says in verse 2 of Genesis 42, so that we may live and not die. But it's 10 of his sons. Jacob won't allow his youngest son, Benjamin, who is Joseph's full-blooded brother, he won't allow Benjamin to accompany the other 10. Now, try to be one of the other 10 brothers. And, and, and how do you react? How do you react to, Joseph, to Jacob's, Jacob's obvious concern for Benjamin, but apparent little concern for them. I won't let Benjamin go because he might die. Yeah, the rest of you might die, but Benjamin's not going with you. That's what it means. I mean, think about that. Jacob won't allow his youngest son. And whatever the brother's reaction, in verses 6 through 9, you now find them in Egypt, standing before the prime minister, Joseph. Now, he knows who they are, but they don't recognize him. Why? I'm not sure. Perhaps because he's clean-shaven. Egyptians were clean-shaven, and, you know, Israelites usually had beards down to here, you know. I, I don't know why they don't recognize him, but they don't. So they bow down before him. They bow down before him. And as they bow, Joseph remembers his dream in which he saw his brother's sheaves, harvested sheaves, bowing down to his sheaf. But, of course, take note that at this moment, it's only 10 of the 11 brothers that are bowing before him. Now look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. I'm really troubled by verse 7. I'm troubled as I hear Joseph treat his brothers like strangers and, and he speaks harshly to them. Perhaps Joseph is following my example and giving them a taste of their own medicine as I might have been tempted to do. But Scripture says that Joseph is wise and discerning. And therefore, I would suggest that what's going on here is that Joseph is beginning a long, drawn-out testing of his brothers. And they need testing. They need testing. I mean, think about it. If Joseph immediately identifies himself and they quickly tell him, oh, we are so sorry for how we treated you, that wouldn't suffice. They need to demonstrate a change of heart. I mean, I'm sorry, kids, but saying sorry is easy. Showing that you're sorry, showing that you're genuinely sorry that's far more demanding and may take some time. It may take some time for you to demonstrate that you are genuinely sorry. 
In verse 9, Joseph accuses them of being spies, which is a reasonable possibility. I mean, surely the Egyptians feared that, uh, feared that other people uh, devastated by famine, that they might attempt to invade Egypt and seize their supply of grain. But in verses 10 and 11, the brothers insist they're honest. They're men whose only purpose in coming to Egypt is to buy grain. We're honest men. I wonder how Joseph... I wonder what Joseph thought of their claim to be honest men. Hmm. He knows them. In verse 12, they tell Joseph, look, we represent a family of 12 brothers. One is with our father. One is no more. Well, of course, that's all true. But (laughs) there's no explanation for why one of them is no more. And, of course, the one who they think is no more is standing in front of them. In verse 14, Joseph again accuses them of being spies. He tells them upon Pharaoh's authority that he's going to keep nine of them in prison, keep nine of them imprisoned in Egypt until they can prove their honesty by having one of the brothers return home and then bring to him this youngest brother that they've talked about. So in verse 17, he places them all in custody, in in prison. He places them there for three days. Three days. That contrasts rather sharply with 13 years, the 13 years that Joseph spent as a slave and as a prisoner. But on the third day, He sends for them. I mean, just imagine how the emotions of the brothers just have to be whirling everywhere as all of this takes place. He tells them in verse 18 that fearing God, and he uses the generic name for God. He doesn't refer to Yahweh. He's not yet giving himself away. He says to them, fearing God, I'm going to mercifully allow you to prove to me that you are honest men, and this is how we're going to do it. I'm going to keep one brother in Egypt while the rest of you return home. The rest of you can go home, but then I want you to come back to me accompanied by this younger brother. He says, if you do this, I'll know you're honest. If you do this, I won't put you to death. In verse 21, the brothers begin to speak in their native tongue with one another without any understanding of the fact that Joseph knows everything they're saying. And the brothers, as they talk with one another, they, they express the fact that, that they're convinced that the troubles they face are because of what they did to Joseph some 20 years earlier when they threw him into the pit and paid no attention to his cries for mercy. And then Reuben, who was the oldest, and forgive me this characterization, who was an idiot. Okay, just, just, just trace Reuben throughout this story. Reuben arrogantly, as the brothers discuss all of this, Reuben feels it necessary to arrogantly protest his innocence. 
He tells them, look, I told you not to sin against Joseph. You wouldn't listen to me. And now that's why we're suffering these consequences. If only you would have listened to me. You ever been in a discussion with somebody about a hot topic, about things having gone bad, and there's always one person who speaks up and says, not my fault. Well, how frustrating that is. I've played on sports teams where a major change in the game takes place because somebody commits an error, and the guy that commits the error comes back to the dugout, and he has 101 explanations for why he misfielded the ball. That guy is an idiot. You made an error. Embrace it. Face it. It's not you know, it's not like it's a disaster. What's a disaster is that you are so arrogant about your refusal to accept responsibility for what has happened. Reuben was the oldest. He was, you know what that means in a family like this? He's the oldest. His word is supposed to have more weight than the, uh, than the words of all the other brothers. So why didn't he do something more than just say, I don't think this is a good idea? I mean, how easy it is to say this is not a good idea when the idea fails, say, I told you. I told you. We live in a culture that loves to not accept any responsibility for anything when anything goes wrong. Don't do that. Don't be an idiot. In verses 23 through 25, Joseph, overcome with emotion, leaves them to weep in private. When he returns, he orders that Simeon, who is the second oldest, I guess Joseph wants nothing to do with Reuben, that Simeon be bound. And Joseph orders their bags filled with grain. He provides them with provisions for their journey. It took about a, a week to go back and forth between Canaan and Egypt. And he orders that the money they brought to buy grain be put back in their sacks. Now, what's he doing? Is he testing them to see if that when they find that money, they'll just keep it and allow Simeon to be executed. I mean, after all, who are these guys? These are the guys who sold Joseph into slavery. In verses 26 through 28, as the brothers journey home, they stop for the night, and one of them opens his sack, and he finds the money that he took to Egypt to buy grain, and seeing the money, look at the scripture. The scripture says their hearts failed them. And then, I think, with, I think this is extremely important. And then they said to each other, what is God doing to us? I'd suggest to you their eyes are beginning to open. For the first time, they acknowledge God is sovereignly in control of all that is happening to them. Well, then in verses 29 through 34, back in Canaan, they tell Jacob what transpired in Egypt and what is required of them. 
And then in verses 35 through 38, as they empty their sacks, each one of them finds his portion of the money that they took to Egypt to buy grain. And when Joseph sees the money, he's afraid and he moans, Joseph is dead, Simeon is lost, and now I'm being asked to put Benjamin at risk. Again, I'm sorry to tell you, Reuben chooses to speak. And what does he do? Reuben promises his father, I'll keep Benjamin safe, and if I don't, then you can kill my children. Hmm? I mean, that ought to be comforting to Jacob. You know, that should comfort him. I mean, you know, I mean, it ought to relieve him a little bit, you know, to know that, okay, I lost Benjamin, I lost Simeon, and I lost my grandsons, but at least Reuben made me this promise. I mean, there's so much comfort tied up in all of that. But Jacob flatly refuses to let them take Benjamin to Egypt. In verse 38, he speaks of Benjamin being the only one left, the only son beside Joseph born to Rachel, the wife he loves. The only son left. Listen to Jacob. This is the only son left. Well, that must have really sounded good to the brothers. I mean, clearly their father is more concerned about one of Rachel's children than he is about them. Now, in Genesis 43, you learn the famine is severe and all the grain the brothers bought in Egypt is gone, so Jacob orders them to go to Egypt and buy more grain. And it's now that Judah, who I've told you some consider to be the hero of this story, it's now that Judah begins to take control. Look at it. Verses three through five, he tells Jacob, we can't go back to Egypt unless Benjamin goes with us. In verse six, his father asks, so why did you tell him that you had a younger brother? And Judah answers, it's because he asked. Verses eight through 10, Judah now vows that he will keep Benjamin safe. He vows to his father Jacob to be responsible for Benjamin's safety. He logically argues we must, he must go with, with all of us. He must go with us. Or all of us, including Benjamin. Dad, he must go with us. Or all of us, including Benjamin, we're going to die of starvation. <laughs> and then he dares to say to his father, we could have been to Egypt and back two times in the amount of time we've spent arguing about this. Judah says, or Judah promises his father, I'll protect Benjamin. If I fail, now here's how you're supposed to talk. I will protect Benjamin. If I fail, I alone, not my children, I alone will bear the blame. And next week, next week you're going to see the price that Judah will be willing to pay to keep his brother safe. 
That's next week. When you're supposed to have read chapters 44 and 45 in preparation for next week's sermon. I didn't see anybody write that down. You're supposed to read Genesis. Thank you. I see a pen. Genesis 44 and 45. Read it in preparation for next week's sermon. In verses 11 through 15, Jacob finally relents. He he agrees. Okay. Benjamin can go with you. He prepares a gift for the prime minister. He sends a double payment for the grain. And in verse 14, he prays. Look at verse 14. Look at Jacob's prayer. He prays. May God Almighty grant you mercy. And may he return to me both Simeon and Benjamin. It's a good prayer. God Almighty, that's the title that the Lord uses in Genesis 17 when he promises Abraham that he will make of his descendants a great nation. And then furthermore, of course, take note that Jacob prays for the safe return, not just of Benjamin, but also the safe return of Simeon. Something is taking place here. In verse 18, Jacob resigns himself to the Lord's will and he prays, if I'm bereaved of all my children and not just Benjamin, if I'm bereaved of all my children, then I'm bereaved. So the brothers accompanied by Benjamin return to Egypt. In verse 16, Joseph instructs his steward to bring them into his house and prepare a noonday meal for them. So, The brother's response, understandably, is fear. I mean, this makes them afraid. They're convinced that Joseph wants them in his house so he can punish them because of the money that they found in their sacks. So what they do is they, they step aside and have a conversation with the steward. And look at verse 21. Now, I want you to look at verse 21, and if you can, remember what you were told back in Genesis 42, verses 35 through 38, because these two things differ. They differ. Here, the brothers, as is often the case when retelling a past event, The brother's story told to Pharaoh differs from what we're told in Genesis 42. I mean, they say, when we we were going home and stopped for the night, we all opened our sacks and we all found our money that first stopover. Well, that's not what you're told in Genesis 42. Genesis 42, you're told that one brother opened his sack and found his portion of the money and that the rest of the brothers didn't open their sacks until they returned home. Ah! The scriptures contradict themselves. How many of you have retold a story and didn't get it right? My father used to say, if you're going to retell a story, it's got to be better the second time. (laughs) I mean, this is just part of the human experience. I mean... 
The scripture is simply telling us in chapter 43 what the brothers said, and they are obviously mixing up the details of a past event. That's a perfectly human experience. There's no contradiction here. I mean, who of us haven't had that experience? I mean, Linda often finds it necessary when I am rehearsing an event from the past, perhaps some heroic moment on the ball field, she, also, she often finds it necessary to correct the details of my story, you know, which is incredibly frustrating. <laughs> you know, it's a much better story the second time. You know. Well, so look at verse 23. They're talking to the steward about the money. And the steward says to them, this is amazing. The steward says to them, shalom, be at peace. Don't be afraid. I received your money. It was your God, the God of your fathers, who put that money back in your sacks. The brother's fear is being eased by a foreigner speaking to them words of shalom. There's the hint of reconciliation in the air. Well, at the end of verse 23, Simeon is brought back to them, and the 11 brothers together enter Joseph's house, and they're, they're treated honorably. I mean, hopefully they were put quickly at ease. I mean, the, the, they are served the way any guest would have been served in an Egyptian household. They're, they're given water to drink, their feet are washed, and their donkeys are fed. And they, in turn, they've prepared the present their father sent to the prime minister. And then in verse 26, Joseph joins them, and now all 11 brothers bow before him. Joseph asks after their father. They assure him he is well. And then once more, they prostrate themselves before the prime minister of Egypt, who they do not recognize. In verse 29, Joseph says to Benjamin, he says to Benjamin, Joseph, here's all the brothers, Joseph turns to Benjamin, and he says to Benjamin, God be gracious to you, my son. Now, we're not told that he spoke likewise to the other brothers. I mean, I think they're being tested. Will jealousy, jealousy once more over, overwhelm them? I mean, daddy's favorite now appears to be the prime minister's favorite. What's with this kid, Benjamin? Well, then having spoken with Benjamin, Joseph is once more overcome with emotion. He seeks a private place to weep, then he washes his face, he returns, and he orders that the food be served. And the brothers, they're seated at the table, they're seated apart from the Egyptians. Egyptians would not lower themselves to eat with foreigners. But as the brothers are seated at the table, wonder of wonders, they are seated in order of age. Now, I, would, I hope that's on video somewhere. 
you know, I want to watch their faces as they take their seats and they're going, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They are seated in order of age. The food is served. Benjamin's portion is five times greater than that of his brothers. I don't know how he ate all of that, but he's given five times more food. But now look, Scripture says, Scripture doesn't suggest that they're overcome with jealousy. The Scripture simply ends here by saying that they drank and they were merry with him. And I don't know whether that means with Benjamin or whether it means with Joseph, but it means they were having a good time. They were having a good time. What's going on here? The Lord is using a famine and Joseph's testing to begin to reconcile these brothers to one another, to reconcile them to Joseph, and most importantly, to reconcile them to himself. Well, believer, the Lord has reconciled you to himself. He's at peace with you, and you live at peace with him. If the Lord can be reconciled to you, if the Lord can begin to bring about the reconciliation of this dysfunctional family, then with whom would he have you reconciled to live at peace? And again, I'm not picking on you. I would preach this sermon to any congregation because it's the reality. There are people here who are put out with each other. How do I know that? Because you're people just like me. That's how I know that. And it's true of every congregation. I wouldn't hesitate to preach this sermon before any gathering of God's people. Listen to me, the grace that saves is the grace that enables you to love one another even as you have been loved. And as you read Genesis 44 and 45, right? Right? Whoa. As you read this week, Genesis 44 and 45, you're going to see the Lord graciously bring about a full reconciliation of the members of this dysfunctional family, once overwhelmed by hostility, they will be at peace with one another, they'll be at peace with Joseph, they'll be at peace with the Lord. It is the Lord who blesses you with the peace that is beyond all human understanding. Peace purchased by Jesus laying down his life for you. And you now live at peace. You now live knowing he is at peace with you. You are at peace with him. And therefore, by his enabling grace, you can die to yourself and live at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for this precious baptism. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious day. And thank you for this cool weather. 
Lord, you're so good to us. We have trials, we have tribulations, we have struggles, we have issues with which we have to deal, hurtful, painful issues, but you're with us. You walk beside us. You order our steps. So Lord, in you we rest. To you we look for the strength and the help that we need, assured of your steadfast love, of your steadfast faithfulness. And all God's people said, amen. amen.